three decades now as a prime mover behind industrial music, rave, and as the leader of his own high-tech cult, Genesis Peorich has infuriated the powers that be with his deliberately provocative ideas and lifestyle. A near-death experience left the young Peorich determined to become a beatnik writer and radical. His instinct for finding other genetic terrorists, like himself, inspired the performance art events of Coom Transmissions. Staged primarily by Peorich and part-time pinup model Cozy Fanny Tutti, Coom's outrageous happenings were theatrical exorcisms designed to free British society of its fears and hang-ups. What was a Coombe performance like? At the very beginning, they were more like street theater and theater of the absurd, very improvised, based around different mythical characters that we invented. And later on, we started to explore taboos, sexual taboos, behavioral taboos, even deeper, and got into what would now be called transgressive art, although at that time, there was no category for that. And as it got more intense and intimate, it became reduced to, in the end, just two characters, a male and a female character. Cozy and I would alternate and be both. And I always saw that as being androgynous, not two people. That they were one creature, separated, trying to find unity with its deeper self. So it, it developed over the years. Of course, as it developed, it created more problems with the media and the status quo. An ironic Coombe retrospective was held at London's ICA. Prostitution became a symbol for everything that was wrong with the country. Compounding the Fuhrer, the exhibit had been staged at the taxpayer's expense. The prostitution show was held in London's Institute of Contemporary Art in 1976. This was pretty far out stuff that you were doing um, uh, in any institution, let alone one that is owned by the Queen. So I'm wondering, do you think that the Queen actually knew about the, the tampon sculptures and the pornographic photos that were hanging and, and what was going on just down the street from Buckingham Palace that night? Well, there's no question that the, the, uh, the Queen or her direct representatives knew because before the, uh, the exhibition opened, word had got out that, that some of the content would be at least controversial. And three law lords were sent down who said that they were sent as representatives of Buckingham Palace. And they said, basically, this show must close. It must never open. Being somewhat cheekier at that time than I am now, I told them that it was not going to happen, that if they wanted to close the show, they were very mistaken if they thought I would be intimidated. And if necessary, we would occupy the art gallery and uh, turn it into a free art zone, paint the building in camouflage, put up sandbags, and uh, have a standoff, just like guerrillas who'd taken over an embassy or something, which at that time had happened a couple of times, so they understood the imagery very well. But surely you knew that the prostitution exhibit was going to be controversial. You were intending to provoke the establishment, weren't you? I was curious to see what would happen. I, I did make a list. I bought all the daily papers and I made a list of all the news editors and I sent all of them invitations. But I was very much, it was a shot in the dark. I didn't know what the response would be or if they would even care. But I was curious to see what would happen.
it was a very bizarre time. And this was all prior to the Sex Pistols and what was to come. So in a way, it's probably true to say the ICA began the storm that accelerated with the Sex Pistols. Prostitution was one of the biggest art scandals of the 20th century. More importantly, it was the official debut of the avant-garde freakout of Throbbing Gristle. Throbbing Gristle's interest in the darker areas of the human psyche was reflected in their lyrics. Pornography, deadly viruses, burn victims, mass murderers. It was difficult to tell if the group was endorsing their subject matter or merely saying, here it is. You have called the, the death factory, the studio, where the TG Sound developed an alchemical musical laboratory. And can you explain for the viewers what exactly you mean by that? What, what was going on magically that created the TG Sound? Before we called the music industrial music, we were thinking of calling it metabolic music. So each person in the band had a different subjective view of what was happening. My personal interest was very much to rebuild a magical approach to sound. I still to this day believe all sounds in and of themselves are linked with archetypes and metabolic functions and psychic functions. And they don't have to be in a cultural pattern that's obvious. In fact, sometimes chaos is preferable because the unlikely can occur. And one of my first ever inspirations to begin making any music was the book Zanoni by Sir Bulwer-Lytton, in which there's an alchemical violinist who talks about the legend that there are a certain combination of notes that you can play on a violin that are not normal musical notation. You can only find them by a combination of faith and random chance. And when you strike those notes together, if you do, you leave this world and you enter another dimension. You transcend being reincarnated, being in a human body, and you leave. It's a key. It's a key to a divine being. And I think that's what music was originally. In ancient times, we had a different consciousness. It wasn't the kind of consciousness that we have now. When people made sounds, they could see other beings still. We only forgot to do that when we developed Western language and perspective and architecture. Our consciousness changed as we developed the idea of perspective and fixed language. So what music originally did has been forgotten. And that was something I wanted to try and rediscover for myself. And to this day, I believe it's possible. That's why I would always have a violin on stage in TG, although I rarely played it, in case I felt that I might be able to hit those notes. And it was there symbolically every single gig. And that was my, my totem to say, I may leave this world and you may come with me because if you're in the room locked in with this event and your body and your neurology are also to some degree controlled by the sounds at that point. Who knows what could happen? And we've had people who hallucinated, we've had people who had visions, we've had girls say they had spontaneous orgasms. 
We've had people become violent for no apparent reason and not understand why. Music is very powerful and it doesn't have to be a recognizable form. The power in and of itself of any sound is enough. Tibetans know this. Tibetans use singing bowls not to sound pretty and sell in shops. The original singing bowls are very specific frequencies which release specific chemicals in the brain and body in order to alter the state of consciousness. So we took that idea, okay, high frequencies alter consciousness. That's why we got piezo horns before they were common and put them right across the top. But we didn't have a formula or a specific destination. We were happy just to see what happened. That's why it was a laboratory. In 1982, Genesis Peorage formed Psychic TV, a rock group with a built-in cult. For a few stamps, the Temple of Psychic Youth, Topi for short, would send you a magical toolkit for creating your own designer reality. How did people who were interested in joining the Temple of Psychic Youth, who were interested in becoming initiated, contact you? Well, we used to put an address, a P.O. box, on the records initially and anyone who was interested could write in. And then, to a degree, we, we took the structure of a magical order or a Masonic order. And one of the things we wanted was for people to be serious about wanting to change. So the basic bottom line is, as we said over and over again, we believe in change. We believe people should change, that, you should, it, that change should be constant. Nothing should remain fixed. You should be in the present, moving to the future. And that takes a commitment. You don't want to waste time talking to people who just want to have a signed photograph. So we, we built a structure that required people to initiate themselves by sending them first leaflets, and then in the leaflet there were two manifestos about our version of reality. And if you were interested in that manifesto, you could write again and purchase the Grey Book. It was 23 pages and it had some more manifestos, and then an example of a, a ritual that people could do in private. Which involved having an orgasm. In that ritual, people would write down something that they truly desired and wanted. It could be very simple. It could be to pay the rent. It could be, and often was, to have a girlfriend or a boyfriend. That was very common. For some people, it was more abstract. And sometimes it was written down in such a way we didn't even know what it said. And of course, it didn't really matter what it said. What mattered more than anything else was that people analyzed themselves and actually started a mental process of choosing a desired, a willed place to get to in their life. They learned how to strip away all the artifice and all the more cosmetic needs of life and isolate one thing they really wanted. And that in itself was the real idea of the whole thing, was to help people learn one by one what their agenda in life really was and then by focusing on that, 
in doing something really specific but pleasurable, they would train their consciousness, their inner consciousness, the unconscious if you like, to move them in terms of decisions they